So in Chankaya, a neighborhood of Ankara, uh, the capital city of Turkey, there's an interesting story a few years ago. Um, the garbage collectors in that area started to rescue books uh, from the trash and put them together into a collection. By the time they had amassed 6,000 books, uh, the local municipality decided they should organize them into a library. At first, it was just for the garbage collectors and their families, but has since been opened to the public. Today, they have over 25,000 fiction and non-fictional works, all that came from the garbage. And they've also started a band from tossed-out instruments and other things that they've found in the garbage. So truly, one man's garbage is another man's treasure. Now, this relates to the title of my message this morning, which is uh, The Riches or Garbage, uh, Apostles on Display. And I have chosen this uh, passage, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because it's actually Paul wrapping up something that he began addressing at the very beginning of the letter of 1 Corinthians. In fact, a very central idea that he made there is paralleled in this section. Uh, There he said in verse 25, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So equally here, he makes a similar reversal. If I can summarize kind of what he'll say, it's something like this. The riches of the world are like garbage to God. But what this world disregards as garbage and scum are the true riches in God's kingdom. So let me give a little background. I'm sure you've read 1 Corinthians before, but it's always good to review. Paul had come through and he had founded the Corinthian church on his first missionary journey. He had actually stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, and in that time he was working He was a bivocational pastor, so to speak, uh, working as a tent maker alongside Priscilla and Aquila. After he left later, he received a report that there were divisions that had uh, sprung up among the believers, and there were different camps. Uh, One said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, another name for Peter. Even some saying, I follow Jesus, but they didn't mean it the same way that, that we would. Uh, We gather from also the beginning of the letter, verses 18 through 31 in chapter 1, that this division also might have concerned wisdom of these teachers. Apparently, the church had divided, each group gathering themselves around one teacher or another, sort of competing with each other. Now, Paul first addressed that true wisdom and true power and God's ways versus man's ways uh, in that first and second chapter. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he had moved on to chapter 3, where he had talked about the relationship of himself and Apollos, uh, using one of my favorite metaphors, uh, the church as God's field. Uh, Paul plants, Apollos waters, but it's God who gives the growth. So Paul and Apollos, they're equals, they're co-workers, they're servants of Christ, and it's God who does the work. So that's kind of the background we need to know when we read this in verse 6 of chapter 4. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So that's kind of what he's been getting at. And now he's drawing this into a conclusion. He's saying there's no quarrel between him and Apollos. 
And then he says, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. Now, many commentators, and if you look in your Bible, this nothing beyond what is written is in quotations. Many commentators argue that this is most likely a slogan or a maximum, maxim that was known at the time. However, it is unclear exactly what it means. And uh, there's often times in the New Testament uh, where Paul or John or any of these writers are writing to their audience, and they're speaking to their audience, and they, uh, there's certain assumed, uh, certain assumptions and, and uh, understandings between them that go without saying. They don't need to know it. Unfortunately, we do need to know it. Uh, thousands of years later, we don't know what they're talking about. But we do this as well in our own speech. I mean, can you imagine in the distant future, someone were to get a hold of some videotapes or some, I said tapes, oh my gosh. <laughs> Even that, yeah, what is this? What is this? That wasn't my analogy, but uh, video or some um, transcripts of like sports commentary of a football game, all right? Those who watch football and know the game would, would totally know everything they're saying, but trying to determine all of these phrases would be almost impossible uh, to a later historian, okay? Richard Hayes, though, in his commentary, believes that there is little reasonable doubt about what Paul has in mind, as the phrase, what is written, when used by Paul, always refers to Scripture. And Paul has prominently highlighted six Scripture quotations in the first three chapters of this letter. And if you want to look them up later, they are Isaiah 29, 14, Jeremiah 9, 22 through 23, Isaiah 64, 6, Job 5, 13, and Psalm 94, 11. But the overall, they have different meanings, but now according to Hayes, if you were to take the cumulative force of these quotations, it would uh, indicate that Scripture places a strict limit on human pride and also calls for us to trust in God alone. And looking further in verse 6, we can see the first one of these is, affirm, is confirmed by what Paul writes. He says, uh, the purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. I like the M NIV here where it says, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So let me paint the picture a little bit. Some, not all, probably the, the upper-class uh, Corinthians, had deemed themselves to be wise and divided themselves into schools or camps uh, based on these different leaders who had come and had taught them. Uh, but these leaders themselves, like Paul, Apollos, Peter, had never instructed them to do this. This was their own um, lifting up of themselves. In the next series, uh, starting verse 7, there's a series of questions intended to challenge the grounds that these Corinthian wise ones would have for being puffed up or arrogant. The first one is showing them to be quite presumptuous. Basically, it's saying, who do you think you are? Let's read it. For who makes you so superior? The who makes you is, is the key. It's a clue to what Paul is getting at. Who is God? God is the only one who can make anyone anything. The next question, what do you have that you didn't receive? I think these questions are really important for us to reflect on today. Uh, we live in a society that prizes 
entrepreneurial uh, ambition, rugged individualism, and productivity. The second question we usually ask people when we meet them after we learn their name is, what do you do? We are defined by our vocation, our career, our credit score. We believe in the myth of the self-made man, and it is a myth, self-made man. We tell people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But my question is, what if someone doesn't have bootstraps, or even boots or shoes? And even if you do, where did you get them from? Uh, Did someone give them to you? Did you buy them? I'm sure none of us creates our own footwear from raw materials. And even if we did, where did we get those raw materials from? So I'm, I'm kind of stretching out this metaphor as far as it can go, but the point is that if If you've achieved something, even with your own hard work, we have to admit that there are always factors outside of ourselves that played a role in our success. None of us can boast that we did it by ourselves. And the ultimate source of all things is God. We have no control, for instance, where we are born, U.S., Turkey, China, or what family we'd be born into, what ethnicity, what social economic status or what natural talents would exist in our personhood, such as some people are good at math, I'm not. Some people are good at sports, I'm not. Only God alone has given us these things. Barry Switzer, the longtime football head coach of the University of Oklahoma and later head coach of Dallas Cowboys, once said in an interview, some people are born on third base and go through life thinking they hit a triple. We should take a good look at our lives and be careful to acknowledge the advantages and help that we've received from other people and also especially from God. The next question, therefore, could apply to us just as much as it applies to the Corinthians. If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? The Corinthians, like us, had no reason to boast or be arrogant, and yet they saw themselves as filled as rich and royal. In verse 8, in fact, uh, what he says there, most likely Paul is speaking in a tone of incredulousness. I like Tom Wright's translation that really draws this out by turning it into questions. It reads like this. Do you really suppose you've already had all the food you need? Do you think you've already become rich? Do you think you've already been crowned as royalty, leaving us behind? I wish you were already reigning so that we could reign alongside you. The Corinthians were acting as if they were already ruling in the kingdom of God. But Paul is showing them this already and not yet quality of the kingdom. Uh, It has already been inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection, but it is not yet fully come. And when it does, and we do... We will gain crowns, which we should lay at Jesus' feet. Um, But the Corinthians, in their desire uh, to be wise, they're thinking like the the philosophers of those days. Uh, There were many Stoic philosophers who thought of a wise man as a king, that he can do whatever he wants. Dale Martin uh, notes that the term king functions more broadly in the terminology of the patron-client structures in the Roman Empire. He suggests that some people at Corinth were styling themselves kings as a claim to patronal position over others 
in the Corinthian church. Now, just to dig into that a little bit, in the first century, it was honor-shame society, and they also had pretty much when you grew up, you didn't think of social mobility. You didn't think that you were going to get better or make more money or become a a different class. You probably did whatever profession your parents did, and uh, you didn't really have much hope of any change in your life. Now, but sometimes if you needed to, if you wanted to try to change or you were trying to, you know, you're struggling in your business, you needed a loan, but they didn't have banks back then. So the system was you would go to a wealthy patron. In fact, actually, you couldn't introduce yourself to the patron. You have to have a broker or intermediary who would introduce the two of you. And the, the patron would give you a gift, which is a charis, which is where we use the word grace. So this patron would give you a grace, which would then empower you to do the thing that you need to do. But it would start a long-term relationship. And it is a one-sided relationship where if this uh, patron then asks you, he needs something from you, then you would do it. It's kind of like the Godfather. There's this idea of like, I do a favor for you. You basically have to do favors for me the rest of your life. Um, So that's kind of the position uh, that maybe some of these Corinthian believers were trying to put themselves into. They thought they were the wise ones and then they should kind of lead the church. And, and not because of their maturity in Christ. They thought they should lead the church because of their, you know, money or status. Now, to respond to this, Paul in verse 9, I think, is a very pivotal verse. Um, and I'm actually, again, I'm going to read this from the NIV because there's a few differences that I just want to highlight. It's just getting to the words behind the words that are in Greek, which I don't know Greek, so we're going to get behind there. It says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to the angels, as well as to human beings. So in the Roman world, there was an event called a triumph. And it was a way that Rome spread the news of their victories throughout the empire. You know, obviously, they didn't have social media in those days. And uh, the victorious generals would parade their soldiers through a city. And at the end of that, uh, and they would pass under a ceremonial or triumphal arch. And at the end of the procession, the last people dragged in chains were the prisoners of war. The captive soldiers from the defeated armies um, from the defeated army, these captives were brought into the gladiatorial arena where they would be displayed to the large crowd and the arena in Corinth had 18, could have 18,000 people and then they were killed. So it's quite a shameful and humiliating exhibition and this is the analogy that Paul uses as an example of apostleship. In fact, in this analogy, God would be the victorious general who's dragging them in there. Uh, But of course, as Paul's been doing before and flipping this, he's saying that through this humiliation, which is displayed not just to 18,000 people, but is displayed for all the universe, even to the angels. It it has cosmic significance. Um, This humiliation serves a purpose and is actually showing God's glory. 
The glory of the cross, that is. So in verse 10, uh, Paul is now using a different tactic. He, he does several different tactics. So he uses irony, or some might even say sarcasm, to make his points. Let me read it in that way. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. So that's, I, I, that is definitely could be one reading of it. But I think what Paul might be doing, simply because he also says, you are wise in Christ, um, is he's trying to remind them of what he's already written. I think he, what he's really trying to do is be ironic and say, look, don't you remember when I said that foolishness is the wisdom and that weakness is the strength and that dishonor is the honor? And he's reminding them of something he wrote at the beginning of the letter in verse 26 of chapter 1. He had used these same three, saying, Not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth, reminding them that God uses what is foolish to shame the wise what is weak to shame the strong, and insignificant and despised to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So Paul then continues his rhetorical argument uh, with these special Corinthians uh, with an expertly constructed pattern. And so I want to take a a step back and kind of look at verses 9 through 13 as an overview, uh, and maybe even uh, a little bit of verse 8. Because there's something of a chiastic structure in this. Now, chiasm is a form of Hebrew poetry where the first and the last line are paralleled, and the second and the second to last are paralleled, and the third and the third to last are paralleled, and so forth until what becomes the focus is whatever's in the middle of the chiastic poem. I basically call it a poetic sandwich. So, Verses 9 and verse 13, actually second half of 13, 13b, are similar metaphors, both being about humiliation. Then verse 10, which still has a connection with chapter 1, but those ironic contrasts uh, parallel with the antithetical responses to ill treatment given in verse 12, second half of verse 12. And then verse 11 through 12a, is sandwiched right in the middle, and it corresponds with verse 8 from above. So it kind of goes like this, 9 and 13, 10 and 12, 11 in the middle, which references back to 8. It's got this kind of neat pattern to it. So in uh, verse 11 to 12a, we have a list of five deprivations that Paul is saying, and, and that's commonplace in the first century, a list of five. It's kind of like the... Uh, the three-point sermon of today. And I also, when you're reading this, you might say there's six, but the idea that hungry and thirsty are, are listed together as one thing. So that makes it five. Um, so he's contrasting this, these five points, with verse eight, which is already full, already rich, already reigning. So he starts it saying, up to the present hour, that's contrasting already, he's saying, We're still in this situation, and you guys are already full. Up to the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty, and you guys are already full. We are poorly clothed, 
and you're already rich? We're roughly treated and homeless. Uh, of course, you are reigning and have your own kingdom, apparently. So there's, you can see the contrast. And the last item, we labor working with our own hands. Um, as Gordon Fee says, it, it doesn't seem to fit the same category of hardships uh, as the previous five items. But Paul's mentioning it because there was a point of contention between him and the Corinthians uh, because Paul had refused their financial support. And uh, maybe he was doing that to avoid this patron-client relationship. Um, and in fact, as Craig Keener says, uh, f- philosophers at that time who were traveling in, in Corinth in that area were known to charge tuition or even depend upon a wealthy patron. To many of them, manual labor was the least honorable option. So it is possible that these well-to-do Corinthian uh, Christians were actually embarrassed to associate with Paul, who was working as a skilled laborer, as a tent maker. Um, But Paul's trying to teach them that there's an overall stance that he has as apostle of of the crucified one, and maybe also trying to give them a little clue about how the patronage system should work, which is that God is the patron, we and apostles are the clients, and Christ is the broker, because there's only one intermediary between God and man, and that's Christ. But the church, as the body of Christ, would function uh, to get those funds to those who need them. And so there would be no um, owing back or reciprocal need, but in the same way, Paul says, my allegiance is not to the Macedonian churches who supported me. My allegiance is to God. So in verse 12, the second half of verse 12, going to the beginning of 13, we now see these three antithetical responses that he gives towards ill treatment um, that are in line with his cruciform example. He says, we are reviled. When we are reviled, we bless. And uh, that, that's kind of reminiscent of Luke 6, 28, uh, bless those who curse you. Um, when, and this could correlate, like I said, with uh, verse 10 above. This would correlate with being called a fool when somebody insults you and calls you a fool. Uh, but we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. And this mirrors Christ's example at his trial and execution. Um, and again, this could correlate with in verse 10, the weak, because the weak might be roughly treated and persecuted, but when they are enduring that persecution, they show that they're truly strong. And then again, we are slandered, we graciously respond. And there is a slight difference here between reviled and slandered, which some people might say that. It's almost like he says the same thing twice, but he's not. Slander has more to do with reputation, one's reputation being attacked, uh, more than simply being insulted. In fact, in Turkey, uh, one of the worst insults that you can say to someone is to call them sheriffs, which literally means you have no honor, and that'll come to fighting right there. That's Don't say that. <laughs> but Gordon Fee also says that this word, uh, we respond graciously, it may also mean conciliate as in the RSV, or humbly make our appeal, as in the NEB, which is what Paul does in his letters. He does defend himself. He doesn't just 
remain quiet. But he does it humbly and with a hope that they will reconcile with him. He's always trying to work towards that reconciliation. So now we come to uh, verse 13. Even now we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. The words here for scum of the earth and or for scum and garbage are basically like what's left over after cleaning the floor or cleaning your body with water. It's kind of like scummy water, nasty. Or the scraping off off the bottom of your shoes. And not today where we are always indoors, but like in those days when they're walking outside, they're walking through this nasty stuff all the time, scraping that off. That's the kind of uh, image. So he's really picking the worst image he can pick, the most. It's, it, the other one was pretty hum- humiliating back in verse 9, um, but this one's also uh, humiliating. But it might bring um, his readers into a, a memory of Isaiah 53, you know, just, just to recall in their mind Isaiah 53 that he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. So here we end on a verse about garbage, and we started this sermon talking about garbage as well. But I think, I hope that the overall idea here that, as Paul says, is that we have to look at the way that God's kingdom looks like, what God displays to us. God is reigning, but he started that reign on a cross, not on a throne. And um, he chooses the despised and the worst things in the world or things that we don't value in this life as the thing that will glorify him the most. And I think uh, we, we can easily apply this today, that it's not just about things, it's about people too. We need to not see, um, we need to see those people who we sometimes look down on, we see them as insignificant, we see them as um, unwanted. Uh, those are the people that we need to uh, have a relationship with. Even, I challenge us, even homeless people who uh, don't dress like us, who are poorly clothed. And just remember that that's, that's the type of people that Jesus spent his time with when he was on this earth. The God of the universe, when he became man, he didn't spend his time with kings, with wealthy to do, with wise philosophers. He spent his time with prostitutes and with thieves and with fishermen. So we should be challenged in that as well. But we give the glory to God. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your glorious gospel, that you, the great God in heaven, uh, came down, became man. The word became flesh. And that you dwelt among us and used something as horrific as a cross to save us from our sin. And help us to see uh, with your eyes, with your lens, help us to see how the world's riches are actually garbage. And help us to be able to see the true riches that you have that are hidden behind a facade of garbage uh, in the world around us. 
help us to be a demonstration of that. Even I challenge that we would uh, live our lives as Paul did as an apostle. And uh, thank you, Lord, for your grace and your gift. You are the true patron of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.